It's not just the one place. <laughs> I have them here. In my famous ass. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. I had to actually think about my name because I so rarely do the intro. <laughs> I almost said, I'm Jonathan. <laughs> well, you often try to do the intro. And stumble. Because you always want to do something different. Yeah. And it, that's a noble want and something we probably should try, mm-hmm. but it never comes out good. Yeah. So I just, I barely stumbled through that intro. I'll practice. Uh, Welcome back. We planned to give you a mailbag in two parts. As you know, February is just a a weird time in tennis. There is a lot of tennis happening, but it is kind of difficult to keep track of it. This is so weird right now because we are recording part two in the same sitting as we recorded part one. Don't take away the mystique. (laughs) (laughs) No, because you're sitting here beside me talking some bullshit. (laughs) I mean, it, it does have to sound like two distinct episodes it will it Mm. will it just sounded a little bit fraudulent to me sitting beside you well i didn't know we hired an ombudsman on the body serve well this is part two we received so many great great questions that we realized we didn't want to record like a three-hour episode to fit them all in so we're breaking it up what should we start with first let's start with Something that caused a little bit of... Consternation? Kerfuffleation mm-hmm. on Twitter when I tweeted about it. <laughs> yes, unilaterally, you tweeted about it on the corporate account. Mm-hmm. The company account. Michelle asks, your thoughts on the new changes implemented to tennis, COVID-related or not? For example, electronic calling, self-toweling, no add-in some events, categories, etc., and the ones you would like to see. Now, I tweeted really late one night, early morning, that I hate the electronic line calling. And some people were not pleased about it. Mm-hmm. I, for one, wasn't that pleased about it. Not, not that you hold that opinion, but that you spoke for both of us and were so vociferous about it. Okay. Because I don't, I actually don't mind the electronic line calling. I do, I very much understand all of the arguments around this issue and the people who are not working because of it. The disappearance of this kind of training funnel for, you know, people who start calling lines and become chair umpires. Totally get all that. But the actual, you know, the ease of watching the sport with the electronic line calling, it's obvious. And the only thing, and and I know a lot of people have recommended this, is some sort of visual component to go along with calls. Okay. The second part of my tweet was, no matter how much the commentators try and tell me it's good for the game. (laughs) And in came a commentator into my mentions to tell me how good it is for the game. It was like the Twilight Zone, frankly. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. And bottom line, it was my opinion. My point is, in saying that, I think it cr- it creates confusion in r- r- super high-pressure moments in matches. There was a moment in the Rafa match where nobody knew what the call was because the crowd was so loud. I didn't like that. That's what set that off. Oh, okay. Right? I also, from going to tennis matches, there was a a real collaborative communal aspect with the crowd waiting for the replay to show us the call. Mm. I enjoyed that. I, I like that. I think what I object to is from the start of this thing being implemented, us being told almost unilaterally how great this is for the game without ever having seen it being played out. And now it's kind of like a, 
will I have to keep that up to then show how right I was in the beginning? Mm. When do we know that the majority all the players like this stuff? Like I'm only hearing commentators tell me that. Do you know what I mean? Like where's sure. the where's Fair the enough. evidence for that? Mm. We know that it's not a hundred percent accurate. There's, there was something like, I think I read a stat where up until Championship Weekend, there had been like four calls missed that were wrong at the Australian Open. It ended up being like a 0. 0.0 something percentage. Mm-hmm. So a small amount, but there's still error. And it's not Fox 10, right? right? There's a lot of the intricacy and the nuance of what the system actually is that isn't conveyed to the listener when you just say this is great for the game. Right, right. And a lot of folks, me included, don't like to be told something is great. (laughs) (laughs) Normally, I would be very contrary in this situation. Mm -hmm. I would be inclined to disagree, but... No, but uh, there definitely is an element of that here with me. Uh, Okay. Contrariness, you Mm -hmm. know? I'm being a little bit of a contrarian. Yeah. What I don't love is this sort of gatekeepy aspect of, well, you can't have an opinion because you didn't play professionally. Oh, it's like what? Okay, I mean, sure. I, I've never been a, a pastry chef either. Like, people have opinions about many things. It, it just seems silly to erect those barriers. I mean, that argument is also gatekeeping for the profession itself, right? We talked yeah. in the last episode about how about what are some of the things that we like to hear and see from commentators who we think would make a good commentator. I'd like to add onto that that I'd like to see more people who did not play tennis commented the sport. So when you say to somebody, your opinion is less because you didn't actually play the sport, you're necessarily making the argument that that class, that that profession should exclude people who don't have that specific experience. It's kind of rich. So should, I mean, should all commentators of every sport be former players? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that works. And, this is true of every sport. It's good to have a mix of professional broadcasters, journalists, former players. Obviously, that's important. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be the only thing, right? And they're often very good at it. It's not just a blanket, oh, you're a commentator, you're good or bad. Some commentators are less good in the booth, but exponentially better courtside. Like There are strengths mm-hmm. to different facets of the job. So there's room for a lot of different types in that role yeah you know so people like us who are not professional players or weren't but are sort of you know commentators on the game we don't have to be the decision makers about the the rule changes in tennis but i feel like fans and analysts and all these folks are allowed to have an opinion Mm -hmm. but also back to the question of electronic line calling you mentioned the lack of jobs like that's a That's a big thing for me, frankly, Mm -hmm. a big part of it. And I also come from a sporting perspective of growing up in cricket, of being a cricket fan, and being comfortable with vagueness in officiating. Like, that is deeply embedded. Yeah, it's deeply embedded into cricket. So I don't have a need for something to... 100% be the sole arbiter of what's deciding what is what in the game. If we have to go upstairs for a replay, if we have to question the lines call, that's what cricket is. (laughs) I'm totally fine with that. Okay. Um, But what the counterpoint is, if you can, if you can tell with utmost certainty if a ball is in or out, why not? Right, Because the discretion you can say for other things. But if a ball is in or out, that's not an opinion. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. I don't think the challenge system has to be this big, drawn-out thing. If the electronic calling is happening in real time, we can still have the lines people make calls. What if we had challenges up until a certain point, and then in the nitty-gritty of matches... The umpire has access to the electronic calling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There there can be some like fun to be had with it as well, because I think there is an element of fan interaction and fan involvement that's gone missing with this. 
Mm. It's led to a very sterile environment on court. I don't think that necessarily adds to the game itself and the viewing experience. Because it's all fine and well to say, well, this is best for the players, but there are other considerations as well. Are we still not trying to grow the sport? Are we still not trying to have people more engaged? I haven't troubleshooted this or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, in that moment, I was just overcome by the force-fed narrative that this is universally good. Right, right. Because there are other considerations mm. at play that are just being completely shut out of the conversation or we're a stone's throw away from this being settled, done and dusted, and it'll just be the way of life in tennis. And I'm yeah, not ready yeah. to close that door. Also, the tennis match in, a te- in an arena is a lot for one official to to keep track of to yeah. kind of MC right so like the chair umpire of course is looking at the lines they're looking at what the players are doing the serve clock they're monitoring the crowd the coaches everything so maybe those line umpires aren't there for the lines but maybe there are actually other tasks to be had in a tennis match because the chair umpire's job has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over the years tennis and cricket and colonial sports like this they love rules, right? They love officials. They lo- <laughs> they like having someone lay down the law. So why not? Why not have a few other umpires there to sort of, oh, well, this player took too long to go to their towel. This guy in the crowd is being an asshole. Watch him. Uh, Patrick is talking too much to his player. Watch him. <laughs> you know, because if these rules exist and they're not enforced, people obviously start to believe that either the rule is stupid or the umpire has no control over matches. Some of the other changes, uh, self-toweling, wow, 100% win. Amazing. Even before COVID, this was such a no-brainer. Why should anybody be handling these sweaty, disgusting towels? Nothing more needs to be said on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Removing ads from certain events, from doubles... Honestly, I don't love it. Kind of a traditionalist with the scoring system. Mm -hmm. So I know that that ship has sailed in a lot of events, but I would would not like to see it expand. I have to say, I do like the tiebreak changes in major events. And I also like Mm. that each of them has a different way of deciding their matches, frankly. Yeah, I do like that. The super tiebreak in Australia, the traditional just... Go at it until you're done at the French <laughs> Open. Though, what is it? 12. Play to 12 at all at Wimbledon and then you play a tiebreak. Mm-hmm. And then at the US Open, it's your more traditional fifth set. Yeah. First seven, to seven, six, right? By two. Yeah. The, the only thing is that the players often have no idea what the rules are when you get, because it's unusual that you get to that point in a match. I mean, I guess the players should know the rules, but. Uh, whose responsibility is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, they can ask the umpire. Like, what are the tiebreak rules here? I, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't think it's that big of a okay. deal. All right. Der Shola has come up with one of his patented FMKs. Mm-hmm. And this one pertains to WTA husbands and boyfriends. His creativity knows no bounds. I guess this is Habs. Wags as wives and girlfriends, so this is tennis habs. I am going to present it as it was presented to me. I don't feel like I need to know these men's names. Mm -hmm. The choices are Badosa's man, Pliskova's man, or Danielle's man. I know. Talk about objectification. He didn't even give them names. (laughs) They're only defined by the woman they are associated with. Imagine how women have felt for all of these millennia. Right. To be honest, I am not in any way invested in this because yeah. I find them all no disrespect to these men. I find them all to be so. They're just not really your type. Middling in terms of an electric response. Fair enough. Totally subjective. Relative you know. to the thirst that these men have generated on the internet. <laughs> It's a good one, though, because it is pretty hard to choose. 
I would say I, I'm going to K Bedosa's man. A, you know, a very, very attractive man. Just not really my type. Plishkova's man would be the F. Follow him on Instagram. And I guess I would marry Danielle's man. Because he, he gets a lot of time off work. He apparently is very supportive. Mm-hmm. I would probably do the same. Except for I can't really tell the difference between Plishkova's man and Bedosa's man. <laughs> they look very different. <laughs> Bedosa's man has a very heavy eyebrows. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. They're, they both have the tall, dark, and handsome thing yeah. going on. I mean, all of them are objectively very attractive men. This is, you know, this mm-hmm. is not a, a dig on anyone. Yeah. I, I wish I had more to give you, Shola, on this one. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you know, I'll just say, none of these guys is Grigor. That's true. All of these men have a full head of hair. Wow. Wow, that that one really hurt. <laughs> also from Shola, has your bandwidth increased for the ATP? Trolling aside, the men had a much more interesting Australian Open than expected. Are there any players you're keeping an eye on for the rest of the season? I would say the bandwidth has slightly increased for the ATP. And I do want to emphasize that we do genuinely enjoy men's tennis. I like watching men's tennis when it's on. I would say we have a, a preference for women. I think but that's it, more so the case for you than oh, it is for me. Oh, okay. I find, generally speaking, men's, men's tennis to be kind of interminable okay. and insufferable at times. Because it's the same shit over <laughs> and over and over again. Okay, fine. I'm just saying, you know, maybe there's a misconception that we hate men's tennis. I certainly don't. I just have trouble separating the art from the artist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's definitely yeah. that. And so when that happens, not being able to separate the art from the artist, I'm not just going to just roll up to any old match and just sure. sit there yeah. and try and enjoy it. Totally. <laughs> you know? But I, I think this Australian Open was exciting because it showed us what will happen if the number one player is not there. Will the sport survive? And aside from, you know, a few of the next-gen players, well, one, who lost early, you know, I look forward to the next decade in men's tennis because it's going to be really different than what we saw. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at, obviously, Felix, Francis, Alcaraz, Berrettini. I don't actually really like Mateo's game very much, but I like him. Uh, <laughs> I am in the exact same boat. That was yeah. one of my big takeaways from this tournament. I do not enjoy watching him play tennis. Which is sad. It's sad to say. That yeah. kind of mm-hmm. hurts my soul a little bit. Uh, honestly, I like Taylor Fritz. Like, I'm I'm not going to stand any white American men. But I actually will sit down and watch a match that he's playing. I like watching Stefanos play. Despite what you may think. I actually, I really do. I need him to dispense with the all the extras, but I actually like watching him play. And Andre Rublev. I enjoy watching Felix play. I enjoyed watching Alka play a lot at mm. this tournament. It was the first time I really paid a lot of attention to him. I enjoyed watching Cressy play. See, uh, yes. the, the variety yes. that he mm-hmm. brings to men's tennis specifically, that was fun to watch. I know. I saw people <laughs> complain that, oh my God, he serves and volleys on every point. I'm Imagine like, that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what serve and volley is. It's more like seventy to eighty percent of mm-hmm. the points. But that's that. I mean, I grew up watching tennis in the nineties. That a lot of that was still on tour. Yeah, some people did that on almost yeah. every single point. Hello, Patrick Rafter. But the thing is, nobody else does it right now. So no. if you're tired of it for like a half hour, then maybe you just don't like it at all. And he <laughs> is hell bent. On bringing it back. Yeah. He said that this is a goal of mine. So more power (laughs) to that man. I'm interested to see how that plays out. Because Mm. one of the most fascinating parts of tennis for me, especially growing up, was baseliner against net player. Mm. Once that person got to the net, what was the baseliner going to do? What is Chris Everett going to do? What is Andre Agassi going to... How are they going to figure them out? And what bullshit is Pat Rafter going to come up with <laughs> to stop this from being a laser winner down mm. the line? You know, the the people who are able to do that well, 
it's a completely different skill set that is such a value add to the game. Yeah. I find it infinitely fascinating. And which is why I don't necessarily enjoy watching men's tennis as much because the strict baseline to baseline game where you get into rallies that all look the same, should you even get into one by some miracle of being able to get the ball back in play, mm. it's it's a lot of monotony. It's giving monotonous for me. <laughs> Thank you, Shola. Daydreamer Oz asks, you can cast yourselves in any TV show or movie, past or present, which character would you play in said TV show or movie, and why? Assuming the talent, mm-hmm. like, you know, the question we answered on the last episode, like an hour ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a fantasy, right? So I'm assuming I have the skill to play the role. Right. And this role requires skill. I would be Billy in Billy Elliot. Why? Oh, that's great. Because it would feel like electricity. I would be, as history has shown, an actor, a successful actor for life. Right. Jamie Bell, Tom Holland. I'd have gig after gig after gig after gig. (laughs) (laughs) And I would probably be a pretty good dude, as it turns out. Yeah, that's such a stone-cold classic. You introduced me to that movie. One of my absolute favorite movies. I actually went to the theater in Jamaica and watched it by myself as a teen when it came out. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Maybe I wasn't a Was I a teen? Yes. Yes, I was a teen. I was probably like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. I think it came what out in 2000? 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to be Judas from Jesus Christ Superstar. As a teenager, I loved this musical. My friends and I would sing the entire score. And you know it's a rock opera. It's all sung from beginning to end. Judas has the best parts. And I, you know desperately wanted to play him does that say anything about you specifically that you would be judas outside of the songs and the singing no well i don't know i mean in so in jesus christ superstar judas just has the best songs Mm. period like he has the more interesting story arc he has the better vocal lines it's a great role that was a, a good question thank you daydreamer oz it made me think quite a bit We got a lot of questions about TV, about Bravo specifically, because I guess we tweet about Real Housewives of Salt Lake City a lot. Drag Race. So let's start with Will. He has thoughts on Drag Race Season 14. And I honestly... Which one is this? I honestly had to think, who's on? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Drag Race Canada just ended. Uh, We just watched a season of UK. There's Drag Race versus... UK versus the world. That's going on right now. Do you know how when people talk about, for example, the Marvel films and whatever, they're like, oh, in the Marvel universe. (laughs) Yes. It's quite literally a drag race universe at this point. for real. Because it's global, it's international, it's happening everywhere. I hope the money's worth it for RuPaul. Because we are getting to the point where it's oversaturated. Mm -hmm. You know, the product, it just doesn't... When drag race happened once a year... For all those years, and when it also had a smaller audience, it felt super special. You know, and if you knew the inside jokes and you knew the queens, you were part of kind of an exclusive club. And now, you know, move to VH1, then it was on, I guess it was on Paramount Plus or something. The show is very much intended for... Mass consumption at this point. And a lot of the fans are younger and not queer. Right, So like you get a little bit of dilution there. I'm enjoying season 14 so far. I love, I mean, I loved Cornbread, yeah. but unfortunately she she's on the, what do they call that? The D, what is DL? it? The DL. Not the, the download, but right. the disabled list. The disabled list, the injury it's list. Now, yes, it's now the IL. I oh, think okay. it became widely accepted oh, to be problematic. Because it's probably yes. politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Cornbread, I mean, Cornbread joins a long list of queens who were injured in the line of duty. Do they have workers' compensation on Drag Race? Is what I want to know. Ooh. So no doubt she'll be invited back next season. But she was clearly a frontrunner. Angeria is, you know, one of the top girls. Could run away with this whole thing. Willow Pill. To me, Willow could have won essentially 
every challenge so far, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been unfair. She I, was that good yeah. in every challenge. I find her interesting. There are not a lot of queens as we get so many seasons, season upon season upon season, who are able to differentiate themselves and their styles from what we've seen before. And I'm not talking about this gothic, scary, scary I'm going to try and be the quirky one kind of thing. That in itself is something that's been done before at this point. Mm. Willow actually has something different to say, I think. She feels fully new to Mm -hmm. me. Totally unique. The performance art thing she did for the talent show was so completely outside of what Drag Race is used to. So I'm enjoying it, but I'm finding myself forgetting after I watch it. Does that make sense? That that happened to me from like season three. Yeah, yeah. So with Canada and with the Australia season, there were so many white girls that I could not tell them apart. And on this season of the U.S. Drag Race... I cannot. I'm so sorry. It's I cannot ju- tell the white girls it's apart. It's not just that because you have to keep a track of them as white men right. and then white women. <laughs> and what they look like in drag. In both. Like, I, I it's cannot. impossible. Yeah. And then when the aesthetics in either look so much alike amongst yeah. them, it's it's a lot. Bridget asks, as a person who has never watched any version of Drag Race but wants to start, which countries should I do first? Any particular season? So, actually, Will answered this on Twitter, and I will concur. Start with the U.S. Like, start with the OG RuPaul's Drag Race. You don't have to start with the first season, but, like, what? At some point, definitely watch it. We, start we started with, from the ground up. Yeah, I would start with Bob the Drag Queen. That's where I would start. Oh, see, the thing is, I don't really like Bob's season. Oh. Like, I, Bob was so dominant that I liked watching Bob. But I didn't really like the rest of the season. Oh. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say it by... I think I... I guess I shouldn't describe it by the person who Mm. won. Right. (laughs) That kind of is a spoiler. Like, to me, seasons four, five, six is kind of the golden age. The, The amount of talent on display in those seasons is staggering. The Canada season one, I enjoyed. UK season one and two, I really enjoyed. Don't really agree with the winner, but start with the U.S. Max asks, what are our favorite shows slash movies of the year so far? Like this year? Well, I guess this year just started. Mm. Let's just say in recent memory. Okay. And we don't, I know you can be very long-winded about this stuff, but let's just (laughs) keep it a bit brief. I think it's safe to say, and thanks to Plucky Loser on Twitter for recommending it, we have just been enjoying the shit out of the last kingdom oh yeah medieval england uh when there were four kingdoms i'm sure british people learned about this stuff in history but i definitely did not mercia and wessex and northumbria and all that had no idea some of the men on this show it is just astounding kudos to the (laughs) casting director because they did an outstanding job Mm mm-hmm because you know in real life, they had bad teeth and they stunk. Mm-hmm. Yes. We do not need to ruin this for me <laughs> right now. But it is a, a historical, like a fictionalized version of English history in the 9th century. With, you know, these kingdoms of England being invaded by the Danes. Or what they called the Great Heathen Army. It's also a great time to watch it. And we're fortunate we did, when we did, (laughs) we have, I think, three more episodes left to be fully caught up, to have finished all four seasons, because season five starts early March. I think it's March 8th or 9th. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there's a, a, that's going to be the final season, and then there's going to be a movie made as well afterward. I love these British series. They're always doing movies. You've probably heard a lot of praise recently for Abbott Elementary. And I would like you to know that in my opinion, it is 100% warranted. Mm -hmm. I struggled with shows like The Office and the ones who would break that fourth wall. Mm -hmm. And it would be like a mockumentary kind of thing. It just felt very white 
<laughs> and so this feels subversive to me because it's a black woman who's doing it, and to my mind, in an actually funny way. And so it's taking a white-dominated craft and turning it on its head and making it good. That's my two cents. <laughs> I mean, I love this show, but I also loved Parks and Rec, so I'm, I'm not mm. saying the whole genre, the subgenre is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't enjoy Parks and Rec right. either, and I know that that's a super minority opinion because it's fairly universally loved, <laughs> but it wasn't my bag either. And Shirley Ralph on this show, oh my god, I have loved watching Miss Ralph for yes. many a decade before I even knew she was the original Dina Jones. And then I found out mm-hmm. she was the original Dina Jones. This is in Dreamgirls on Broadway. Mm-hmm. One of the first times I knew of her was as that mean-ass mama of Miss Lauren Hill. Oh, Honestly, probably everyone our age, that's when they discovered her. Sister Act 2, mm-hmm. the strict mom. But, you know, she's been in so many things. She was Moesha. Moesha. But they put together a very strong core cast. Mm-hmm. There's really only six, I think, six actors in the core cast. And I and, appreciate that nobody's mm-hmm. annoying. Even the <laughs> annoying... Principal? No, I oh. don't find her annoying at all. But even the annoying... And I guess he's intended to be a bit annoying, though. Oh, the young white teacher. The young white teacher. I don't find him annoying either. Because he's uh, well-meaning? Well-meaning, and he's properly cast in a very supporting role. Mm. They're not hitting you over the head with the annoyingness, you know, and they're actually giving him some layers. Not a lot, Mm. but a few thus far. Quinta is so funny. And I was so disappointed when I realized she had left the season, the second season of Black Lady Sketch Show. Like, where is Quinta? And then I realized she was creating the sitcom of her very own, and it was worth it. So you said, though, do you have more? You can go ahead. The part one of the final season of Ozark, amazing. It really was. Ruth is coming for Emmys number three and four. Uh, I forgot her name in real life. But this young woman is incredible. Laura Linney, though, you know, Laura Linney is getting overshadowed a little bit by Ruth's more bombastic performance, but she is terrifying. Mm. Quietly, she is a psychopath. Probably one of the most heinous characters <laughs> ever written. And the <laughs> development of that over four seasons, it's, it's wild. Mm-hmm. I loved Midnight Mass. I love Mike Flanagan. Never saw it. Is this some scary uh, shit? Yeah. Uh, he weaves horror and just unabashed sentiment together very well. Like, I, I love the sincerity of his work because sincerity can come off as corny. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot more difficult than being snarky. Here I am. Me, I am bored by this. What? You could easily I have just said... for 10 seconds. You could easily have just said it's some really good scary stuff and people have gotten okay. the hint love midnight Mass. we don't need to get all david foster wallace about it what may he rest in peace <laughs> archive 81 on netflix great kind of it's kind of a found footage horror show but it also has a lot in the present day didn't end amazingly well but i'm i'm on board for season two and finally all creatures great and small the best, bar none, the best TV series being produced today. Fight me. Well, that is a bold statement. Mm-hmm. You really do enjoy that show. I, I mean, what's not to love? We also went back and watched The Dorals. We'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. It was recommended to us and thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, there's this strain in British drama. They love to set... TV series or films just before the dawn of the Second World War. And so the entire series is this steady foreboding, which is very powerful. I am currently watching a lot of Spanish language shows. Mm-hmm. I studied Spanish at for A-levels up until that level in high school. And I'm determined to work on it more this year. 
And so my goal is to watch at least one episode of Spanish TV every night. I started with Oscuro Deseo, season two. Dark Desire. Dark Desire. Um, I cannot recommend that as a good show. <laughs> Definitely cannot. <laughs> but it served its purpose. <laughs> they may be bad, but they will have the hottest people you've ever seen. They, sh- they sure like, did. And I'm currently watching Toy Boy. <laughs> Again, not great, but serviceable. And like The Last Kingdom, the men, mm-hmm. it's just jaw-dropping stuff. We watched Control Z. Mm-hmm. There are two seasons of that. That's set in Mexico. Very violent. Yes. A lot of like high school kids we killing each other. We should say that The Last Kingdom is extremely violent. Yes. Extremely violent. And not something I usually up for or okay with. I just kind of cover my eyes when I know there's yeah, some kind of impaling or dismemberment like coming. Braveheart kind of violent, you know, gladiator kind of violent. Yeah, you know, like swords through the neck. Yeah. Head split in half, heads chopped off. Oh, I mean, you don't, we're going to have to put a trigger warning. You don't need to explain it. And finally, on a lighter note, Annie asks a reality TV Bravo update. What are your faves and what are you watching right now? So, you know, we watch Below Deck. We watch Below Deck OG just ended. And it was a weird season, man. It was clouded by um, the use of the N-word by the chief stewardess and the fallout from that. How poorly it was handled by uh, it the, was, the people in charge on the boat. Yeah. And also what's clear now, too, how poorly it was handled by production. Yeah, it was a great HR case study in how not to handle something in the workplace. You know, we've been closely following Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I'm kind of over that at there's this point. A lot of, there's really a lot of yelling it. on the season. A lot of yelling. But also the same arguments happening over and over and mm-hmm. over with no resolution. No attempt at a resolution. The highs were pretty high in terms of drama and entertainment. But the middle <laughs> yes. parts, quite frankly, terrible. And you've pointed out that it's atrocious that one of the housewives, that one of the housewife dynasties, is that what you call it? Um, divisions? Franchises. Franchises with, you know, some of the most number of women of color on the cast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that all of them are, quite frankly, horrible. Yeah. On show and, and like off And air. two of them are racist. Yeah. Like super racist. It's very uncomfortable, right? Because Bravo was criticized obviously, over the years for not only being homogeneous racially, but having some really atrocious racist moments go unchecked on the Housewives shows. So with Salt Lake City, you know, they have uh, introduced, uh, I mean, it's not a diverse cast, but slightly more diverse than their other casts. And, you know, Mary Cosby said some really horrible things about Mexicans Jenny Nguyen, who has already been fired, is basically an alt-right racist. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable. On to a tennis question. V.W asks, what tennis pro's shot would you want for yourself? The catch is, it can't be a serve. <laughs> this one's so easy for me. Mm. It would be peak Venus swinging volley. Oh. Because... Huh? When I play tennis, it is junk, junk, junk all the time, 24-7. I will mess up your rhythm. Not saying I'm good at it, but that's what I try to do. (laughs) And partly because that's all I can do, because I'm not very good at tennis. And I love (laughs) playing at net. So if I can find a way to make my game more effective at net, that is it. And that's what I'm going to do. Plus, it's iconic. The silhouette of Venus Williams swinging volley. Amazing. Iconic. Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of picked one from my faves. So Serena's backhand. If I had to go one-handed, it would be Stan's backhand, which is one of my favorite strokes in tennis history. Lindsay Davenport's forehand. And Rafa's overhead. Oh. Because I actually like my own forehand. Oh. And I know that I couldn't hit one like Rafa. The The mechanics just don't make sense to me. <laughs> uh, so I would pick Rafa's overhead because I think it's one of the the more perfect strokes in men's tennis. And you would need it playing me. (laughs) Vera says, Danielle Collins, pain-free, will go much further in my opinion. What do you guys think? I think it makes sense, right? She'd been playing 
with a lot of pain for a long time. And the thing is, she may still be playing with pain, Mm -hmm. right? She's dealing with chronic conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, and endometriosis. But I think more than, even more than the physical pain is that she's probably feeling some freedom and some relief from having these things diagnosed after so long. So I hope that she can remain healthy physically. And Australia is obviously where she shines the most, but what what really is stopping her from doing that in the US, at Wimbledon, anywhere else? I think Danielle Collins with confidence and being able to harness that fury is someone that everybody should be afraid of. Adam asks, do you think Thanasi is channeling George Michael? That's an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> For us, yes. I don't he's think got it's the what Greek, he, the Greek thing yeah. going on. The I, don't earring. Think, I don't think it's what he's going for necessarily. That probably predated him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it kind of predated us, even. Yeah, but absolutely, that was the first thing that came to mind when I first saw it. DBS Night Owl asks, "Do you think or Queen Serena can pull off one more? And how many more attempts does she have?" Right now, it's all gloom and doom in the army as far as what Serena's future tennis career Mm -hmm. looks like. You may know that I'm the most optimistic fan when it comes to my faves. I don't think there's anything Serena can't do. So if Serena says she's going to win Wimbledon this year, I believe her. She hasn't said that. (laughs) (laughs) What if Patrick Maratoglu says that? Then I will believe she's retired. Oh, Lord. Essentially, whatever Patrick says, I believe the opposite. The thing is, with Serena, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I I don't know if she is continuing her tennis career, if she's going to slip away in the night, which she alluded to once that, you know, when she retires, you may not even notice. She may just disappear. She's spoken recently about how if you've seen King Richard, you know how much importance the family put on preparation. You know, so Serena doesn't make decisions impulsively about her career. So if if she is to retire, there's a plan. It's just that we don't know what the plan is. But as a fan, and as someone who's been consistently surprised by Serena over the past 20 years, yeah, I think she can do it if she really wants to. Adam also asks... We all know that not all tennis players can or will win a Grand Slam title in their career. That's okay. There's a consensus that the Grand Slams are the pinnacle in tennis. But I was wondering if there were other metrics that could be used to assess a player's career. For example, number one ranking, Olympics, consistency, longevity, being a constant contender for titles, being a groundbreaker from a small country, not being a quote natural born talent, but working extremely hard to maximize your career, etc., I remember Elena Dementieva saying many years ago that for Russians, the Olympics are such a huge deal, even bigger and more important than Grand Slams, and winning gold in Beijing was the highlight of her career. On that note, I was wondering who you think has had a really impressive career without winning a Grand Slam title. Sorry for the long question. Unfortunately, I think we're at a place now more than ever where the majors or the slams, whichever you want to call it, They are the metric. There's no escaping that Mm -hmm. at the moment. And it wasn't always that way. No. A lot of tennis historians will point out that in the good old days, pre-open era, the Grand Slams were not the measurement, right? It was head-to-heads. It was dominance on the professional tour. There were so many other things taken into account that a record like Margaret Court's pre-open era slams is given some kind of outsized importance because of how we look at the sport today. Sure, there are a lot of other things that we can look at to say that a player is a good tennis player, even within just one single match that they lose. Mm -hmm. You can watch somebody with uh, outside the top 100 ranking, and you can see that they're still a pretty good tennis player. (laughs) Right. I, I mean, John Wertheim has talked about this a lot, where folks in the top 100 are all super super talented and a lot of the things that separate you know a a number 25 player from a number one player is mental is confidence is like is understanding how to win one more gear of leveling up your fitness Mm. for example very very small differences 
but differences nonetheless that create a large chasm between the top and the not-so-top players. Right. Absolutely. Consistency. Even if you're not winning slam titles, you, you go to somebody's Wikipedia page and you look at their career statistics and you see how they've performed at slams. And something I always look at is how many quarterfinals did they make? Sure, they may not have won one of the big ones, but if you're making like 10 to 15 quarterfinals, you were a very good tennis player. And for a long time, those people were Simona Halep before she won her major, Caroline Wozniacki, Flavia Panetta. None of them came out of nowhere to win majors, even Flavia. Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova has had many second weeks in slams. Kaya Kanepi, people like the Maleva sisters, who didn't win singles grand slams, but made a massive impact on the sport. The Amritraj siblings, massive impact on tennis. What's important for me is that given the what I think is the outsized import placed on slam tournaments, that we don't then use that to denigrate regular tour events. Because mm-hmm. you can't just have four tournaments per year. Those tournaments depend on ATP events and WTA events to be what they are currently. They've been built off of decades of these tours existing. And so I'm not here for the slander on players who may not necessarily have the best results at slams, but quote-unquote vulture other tournaments. Mm. You know, like the tour needs players showing up to these events to be sustainable. Right. And it's not easy to win tour titles. <laughs> right. It simply is not. Uh, Danielle Collins just last year won her first. Mm-hmm. Did you think she was a trash tennis player before? She was clearly a good tennis player, but she hadn't won one. And obviously some players are going to be better than others. And sometimes a player who is objectively not as good a tennis player beats a much better player on any given day. That's just the nature of the sport, yeah. you know? So I like this question in that it allows for us to have a little bit more empathy in the way that we talk about and view players' careers. Maybe I'm being too generous. I don't know. <laughs> but to the back half of that question, who do you think had a really impressive career without winning a Grand Slam title? On the men's side, I would say, and this is not an exhaustive list, I'm sure there are a lot of people who could offer other suggestions, which would be equally valid. But off the top of my head, Berdick, Ferrer, Nelbandian, and Todd Martin. Yeah. Out of that group, Nelbandian is the one who kind of passes the test the most for me, just because of how impressive he was against the best of the best. And on the woman's side, I would say... Dementieva, Radvanska, Mary Jo Fernandez, Safina, Yankovic, and Pam Shriver. Yes. I think we've said this on the show before. Pam is often thought of as a double specialist, but she had a pretty damn impressive singles career over a long period of time, making a bunch of second weeks and being a top five ranked tennis player. Mm-hmm. And she came of age in a period where... The tour was utterly dominated by two players and Mandlikova. That was really like the only room to breathe. Well, there was Tracy Austin as well and then Andrew Sure, Yeager. but, you know, Tracy won two majors, yeah. was done. And similarly, in the current era of men's tennis, there are very few players who have had the opportunity to win majors. And there is going to be a lot of talented people who retire with none. That doesn't mean their career was for naught. So another caveat here to this discussion is, are you only considered a good tennis player if you beat who is thought of as the best Mm. in those important moments? Because we're going to go through a period where we're going to have to be deciding who is the best again. And it's going to take a few years to decide. So then do we only go back retroactively a few years after the fact and say, oh yeah, this person is actually really, really good because he matched up against so-and-so-and-so who is now a really good player. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who five years later, we now know that these two are the best of this generation. I don't know if any of that really answered the question. (laughs) We're just kind of spitballing there. I feel like in team sports, there's more room for admiration. 
like there's there's more to go around, right? You can be a great player on a not so great team. Like you don't have to have all these championships to be an all time great. Ian asks, where are you both at on your Wordle journey? <laughs> Is it a journey? Well, we are currently at a place where at midnight we both do it. Yeah. I was very resistant at first because I wasn't very good at it. It made you feel stupid? I don't like doing things that I'm not good at. It's one of my toxic traits. (laughs) (laughs) I think for a good week you kept saying to me, am I stupid? No, really. Why is this so hard for me? I was like, I guess my brain just doesn't work this way. But I've, you know, figured out how it works and now I do it every night. And it's fun. No? Yeah, it is fun. I have never once shared the little pictogram. And of, as such... And I will never. And as such, you are so much better than me and everybody mm-hmm. else. Yep. Is that what you want to hear? Um, Partially? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy it. I really do. I do think, though, that there are a lot of liars on the internet when they post their <laughs> grid. Mm-hmm. Like, you did not get a tool... Three days in a row. It no. just didn't happen. I I may be a poor sport, but I've never been a cheater. That's just not, it's not in me. You may have thrown remote controls. You may have may ha- yeah. flung a racket or two. You may have stormed off in disgust. Mm-hmm. That's all in the conditional. May have. <laughs> but you will never cheat. I do not cheat. Period. I'm currently at, I think, 29 or 30 wins in a row. Well, not wins, but like, right. I've gotten the puzzle like around 30 wow. times. My streak. I, I've I was, yet to lose. I was sweating the other night because yeah. I went all the way to six. I, can't, I think it was on skill. I think the word was skill. Alyssa asks, what is your Real Housewives of Tennis dream cast? So she suggests Serena and Caroline as the besties with the you can't sit with us energy. I can see it. Danielle, because of the dramatics. Sloane, because she's not afraid to get messy. Sloane, this is this is Alyssa, not us. Don't block <laughs> us. Okay. Oh, oh, and Alyssa says she's stuck on who should be the boring one and who should be the eventual criminal. Wow. I feel like Alyssa has been watching Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. So who is the Jen Shaw? I don't know. I'll can tell I, you. Oh, can I go first? Yeah, sure. See, I took a... Uh, a very literal lens to this question. Because if you're going to be a housewife of tennis, you need to be married or with a male tennis player or have been at some point. Wait. Or a lesbian. Have been in a Wait, domestic do, lesbian do relationship. Not watch Atlanta? Most of the time, the ladies are not even married or okay. in a relationship. Okay. I'm just saying the strict season one of Atlanta. Okay. The strict premise, right? That's just the way I went at it. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I formatted my mm. response. So who is the Deshaun Snow? Oh my of- <laughs> God. So, mm. Mirka Federer. Oh, okay. So you're not only looking at current no. WTA players. Steffi Graf. Can you imagine? She would never film. Dasha Gavrilova, now. Uh, Saville. Mm-hmm. Isla Tomlanovich. Flavia Panetta, Donna Vekic. Who was she with? At one time, the Nasi. Oh, according to... At one time, Stan. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. If you need to cast a wide net and you don't have as many options, she could qualify under these metrics. Okay. Sloan, from her Jack Shoe mm-hmm. days. Because why not? From her Jack Shoe mm-hmm. days. Svidalino, hello. Gail would be on the show too. Madison Keys, who's now with Bjorn. Fratangelo. Mm-hmm. And who could forget Ms. 52 Languages, Mladenovic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you went in a totally different direction. Yes. I looked at it as more of like a real world kind of, like I was just casting a reality show. Yes. You know? So Alyssa asks who should be the boring one. And I think that Elisa Martins would be a good addition. That is so rude. No, no, no. See, this is why I didn't want to do it this way. Because why is she the boring one? Because she is consistent? Wait, the boring one isn't always boring. 
they always cast someone for stability. So you're saying she'd be the Cynthia Bailey of the cast. Thank you. Right? Cynthia does, despite popular opinion, does add a lot to the Atlanta cast. She did for most of her run. She, right. I think every cast needs stability. And who is more consistent and stable than a woman who's reached, what, a million round threes in a row at Grand Slams, which we talked about on mm-hmm. one of our episodes. And I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. You need consistency. I, uh, you need a Cynthia Bailey. I do not like this. But continue. I'm not trying to... Okay. I'm not I'm denigrating saying, Mertens. I'm just saying, who better? I'm, I'm saying there is an element of denigration that's impossible to eliminate from fine, making that fine. argument. So, Serena, Garbina... I'm not going to cast Caroline because I'm just not. And I'm, I'm not going to explain myself. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Garbina would be particularly good on it. I think she would be. Okay. Uh, well, that's settled. Daria Kazatkina, most <laughs> definitely. I love how definitive you were with yeah, that. This is my cast. Dasha Kazatkina, like, that is a no-brainer to me. She's funny. I don't know which housewife she would be, like, on an Atlanta situation, but she'd be funny as hell. Pavlyuchenkova? And Azarenka. And, as a bonus, Sierra would be a friend of the show. Because she's a friend of Serena. And not Beyonce? Sierra the pop star. Not Beyonce. Beyonce would never do that. <laughs> Beyonce, you know, she curates her public image very closely. Sierra, no, she Sierra's the perfect friend of the show because she's fun. She's effervescent. She has a wealthy husband she's happily married to. Cute kids. It's a total win. Okay. We're going to finish the episode with not so much a question, but a request from Vern Jones for us to please comment about Miss Janet getting her flowers, her run of albums starting with Control, being insane. Yeah. What's so tragic about this is that there's a whole generation of kids who have no idea that Janet Jackson was the biggest superstar in the world. The Super Bowl happened in 2004. There was a calculated effort to destroy Janet's career from Les Moonves from CBS. 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 (laughs) Not the pharmacy. uh, The broadcasting company. (laughs) I am thrilled that Janet is getting her flowers because there are so few women in particular in the entertainment industry, who are legit, true icons. Janet Jackson fits every description. Mm. A singular force. Somebody who birthed generations of artists and talent who borrowed and built off of her career. I mean, we just we just talked about Sierra, yeah. right? She's a blueprint. Like, Beyonce wouldn't be Beyonce without Janet. Beyonce says that. From Control, you know, she's working with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. They were part of, like, the Minneapolis Prince creative explosion. We're talking about music that changed the course of R&B forever. Changed pop music. New Jack Swing. Like, Janet is ushering in New Jack Swing with Control and Rhythm Nation. Then we get Janet in 93. We're just gonna have a frolic on the beach and give you easy, casual sex right and then velvet rope so velvet rope is like oh okay you want neo soul i'm gonna give you the blueprint for it Mm -hmm. i'm gonna give you this is lemonade this is anti this is every artist when they decide to go serious and give you a concept album velvet rope is the blueprint now for r&b artists velvet rope is one of the greatest albums period not just r&b period in history and it's one of those watershed moments in her career when people and critics start to take her seriously. How much success does one need to have? And how much influence does one need to have on the culture at home and abroad to be taken seriously? But as an independent body of work, it was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I remember watching the... I get lonely video and just being blown away. And then she gives us together again, got till it's gone. 
like the Joni Mitchell sample. It's it's mind blasting, and that's not even considering the hits upon hits upon hits, the record breaking stuff she did with Control and Rhythm Nation. Yeah, I, for me, Control is the pinnacle. Like Control is one of the most important albums of the century, in my view, and it is finally getting a very very serious look from those rock critics you know the rolling stone uh spin types who would have overlooked it at the time is being recognized as a seriously foundational record we're also seeing a shift in how a shift in how greatest lists are being computed right the people who were the gatekeepers of those discussions are decidedly less white and male now Right. There's and, more room for And look for what's happening discussion. with the Oscars, right? They diversify the voting body, and Parasite, Moonlight, Nomadland are winning Best Picture. Like, legitimately great films. The, the Janet documentary I really enjoyed. The thing is, Janet is such a private person that I, I always find myself wanting more. And not even necessarily the personal stuff. I wish they had spent more time on the actual creation of the music. I wanted to learn more about the creative process behind control. Right. But when you come from the Jackson family, mm. that's going to breathe and suck up a lot of air yes. into this story. Yes. And you cannot untether that from Janet. There are people who will say that she was successful because of her name. Well, if that were the case, all of the Jackson siblings would have been superstars. Right. As solo acts, Janet would have popped off with her first two records. That didn't happen. It wasn't until she got rid of her father's manager and decided to take control of her career and do the music that she wanted to do that her career took off. And by that point, she had already been a successful actress. She really did things in pop culture that Michael never did. The totality of her talent is, I mean, it's sizable she's also i think one of the groundbreaking artists in terms of visuals in terms Mm. of her image how she presented herself short michael had the glove the this that he had a very specific aesthetic but janet didn't really repeat eras and each of them were jaw-droppingly distinct like she that's a good point she controlled (laughs) the fashion scene with the Rhythm Nation get-up. Like, and what an iconic look it was. Mm. I remember being a kid and seeing Janet Jackson show up at award shows, like whether it be the Rhythm Nation era or the Velvet Rope era, and just being in awe of her presence. Mm. For somebody like her brother, I guess, who is so soft-spoken and shy, to be able to command the stage and have that kind of presence and emit this aura it it was captivating yeah so my wish is for all the the people younger than us to discover janet in her glory and you know realize that britney sees janet as a forebear as someone who influenced her directly in sync but you know not only late 90s we're talking about beyonce sierra rihanna everybody owes a debt to miss demita joe mm-hmm. And I would say, uh, can we do Mariah next? I because think we've done... <laughs> no, not us. Oh, okay. But as a society. Like, well, and the, can, can we move past... The Mariah Renaissance has been in motion for much longer than than Janet's kind of redemption. Sure, you know? but it's a Christmas time redemption. <laughs> like, people have pegged her squarely in mm. that lane to the detriment of her entire body of work. No, but the girl, the girls who know these days, they know. Kelly Clarkson's talking about Mariah's songwriting. You know, the real ones, they're, they're on board. And at some some point, we'll need to have a conversation and as a society, we'll have to have a reckoning about how the music industry treats women over the age of 30. Yeah. You may think it's like, oh, once you hit your 40s. No, it's once you hit 30. Mariah doing what she did at the age of 35 with Emancipation of Mimi, Kind of unheard of. And say nothing of when they get into their 40s. 
there's literally like I'm not even sure two handful of women who've had number one hits after the age of 40 in the entirety of pop music it's really like a Serena and Martina Navratilova thing going on with Tina Turner and Cher and Mariah (laughs) if you've stuck with us for these two mailbag episodes thank you it was fun to do something a little bit different Part of why we wanted to do this was we've had a lot of new listeners come on board since the start of the year with the Australian Open and the Djokovic stuff happening and quite a few folks saying, oh, I've just discovered the show. This was kind of an introduction to Mm -hmm. us as well. Every once in a while, we, we sort of reiterate our mission statement and talk about who we are and what we hope to accomplish with this podcast. And, uh, I don't know, I guess now would be a a good time to briefly reiterate. We are a queer podcast that is decidedly anti-racist. Yeah, we are biased. We are open in our biases. We are honest as possible. Often wrong, nonetheless. uh, Stand in our wrongness when it happens. Make corrections willingly. Within reason. (laughs) But really, though, the whole purpose, like the whole reason that we do this is because we identified kind of this this gap, this opportunity in tennis media long ago. We saw this opportunity to talk about tennis in a way that appealed to... To people who often don't see themselves reflected and represented in tennis. Mm-hmm. The tennis analysts, they they have their thing, right? The The experts, they'll have a space, but... For people who see tennis as larger than sport, as political, as seeing these intersections of sexuality and race and gender and power and money, that's always been our goal, is to sort of pick away at that. And to do it while also not taking ourselves too seriously, I think. Yeah. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at The Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on any of the podcast apps that you use. Well, I feel like if you're listening to a podcast, you found a podcast. You know how to find one. Okay, fine. So maybe we'll just say from now on, linktree.com slash The Body I mean, people probably skip the end anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here's a test. I'm going to, we're going to put a, a code word here and see how many people send it to us to know how many people are listening through to the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. What word shall we use? Luminescent. Luminescent. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not something you just think up, right? We're not trying to trick people. We're not trying to catch fraudsters giving us the wrong code. Oh, I thought that was (laughs) No, it's just the fact that they've listened to hear the code. (laughs) Well, you got to be pretentious about it. Okay, fine. Either luminescent or mellifluous. Mellifluous mm-hmm. is the word that got me kicked out of the MFing spelling bee yeah, you're as a 13-year-old. No, I wasn't even 13. I was 10. Still bitter about it. On that note, thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.